a.m. I believe Jay Cox, our pianist, must have had some extra caffeine this morning. You're really leading us out there in that hymn. That's great. Good. It's great to see you today. Take your Bibles and turn somewhere around 1450, 1440 in your study Bibles and turn to Amos. This is, gentlemen, one of the greatest books in the Bible. It's uh, often not seen that way because uh, we find it difficult sometimes to understand it. But it is truly a great book of the Bible. It gives us guidance for how to live in many aspects of life, but especially with respect to social justice and righteousness, as we have seen. Those words justice and righteousness appear together in this text uh, on several occasions, as we've already seen. By the way, while you're turning, let me just mention today, and this is the only day you can do it, you can get a subscription to a devotional guide that many of our people use. It's called Encounter with God. And it's got a couple of features in it that are worth looking at. And I know you've got your Amen daily Bible readings. You may not be interested. But if you'd like to have an additional uh, devotional to use, you can use it at home if you like with your family. Uh, It's got a uh, text from the Scriptures that we read. And it's not even a whole chapter a day. It's part of a chapter, usually about a half a chapter Then it has some comments about the text. And I guess what I like about it, it's not just a sort of devotional thought, but it really is a a short exposition of a biblical text. And then it's got a short prayer that you can read or your family can read at the end. And if you like, it's got a a daily Bible reading. uh, uh, It's got a schedule for reading through the Bible in one year at the bottom of the page. And it goes through one quarter. What you do is you subscribe for the year. It's 12 bucks a year, and you get one of these each quarter. And uh, so if you want to take a look at it, I don't know if there are any extra copies around. Carl can sign you up back there afterwards. And, Carl, do you have any copies? Uh, I don't think you do. You do have some sitting there? Uh, and I've got one here if you all want to just look at it and see if you're interested. But Encounter with God, 12, you can just sign up, pay 12 bucks, and uh, you can get it sent to your home. Folks, we're in Amos, and the reason this is such a great book is that we're getting the character of God presented to us, and especially his view of how we deal with culture and community. It's very, very important. We've seen that it was written very early. This is written in the 8th century, around 760 B.C. or so. Long, long time ago. And it not only gives us the character of God in his holiness, but the character of God in his grace and compassion, as we shall see. And so it it gives us a wonderful scope of God's view of how we ought to be treating our neighbor. And it gives us a a view of God's character, both in his holiness, his justice and his grace. Uh, We've seen as we looked at the first part of Amos, you'll remember that the first shocker that the people get in chapters one and two is that God is not only going to judge all the nations of the earth, he's going to judge his own people. Just because we put our name on a membership roll somewhere, or just because we go to church, or just because we call ourselves Christians, that doesn't mean that we escape God's judgment. His judgment goes to the heart and sees the life. So being nominally on someone's membership roll, you can say, I've been a Presbyterian all my life. My grandmother was baptized in this church and all that kind of stuff. That's going to get you nowhere because God sees through all that. He sees what you believe and he sees what you're doing. So that judgment is a searching judgment that goes to the heart of the human being. We have to be sure our hearts are right 
our private behavior is right, uh, our secret thoughts, uh, as well as our public deeds. God cares about all of that. And we will be judged. That was the first shocker that God is not going to just pass over Israel in their wickedness unless there be real heart of faithfulness there among the people. Then we saw in chapters 3 and 4, two lawsuits. That's kind of scary. God's going to bring us into the, the divine court, and He's going to be the prosecutor and the judge and the jury and the executor. So uh, we're brought into court on two lawsuits. The two lawsuits, you remember, chapter 3, uh, first of all, uh, we're people who trample the poor. That we've shown our real attitude toward God in the way that we deal with the weakest among us. Not just in the church, but in the community as well. Secondly, the second lawsuit was that we're insensitive. We're insensitive to our neighbor. And secondly, and more importantly, we're insensitive to God. He's been trying to get our attention over and over again. And you remember Amos just has this refrain. I, I did this, but you still didn't repent. And so on. It says that about five or six times in chapter 4. So we, we see that uh, our hearts have been hard. He says over and over again in chapter 4, Yet you have not returned to, to me. I did this to you, you didn't return to me. I did this to you, you didn't return to me. I never got your attention. So that's the second lawsuit. Now, when we came to chapter 5, and that's what we got into last week, uh, we see that God brings us in and, and holds a lawsuit against us as a judge, for he is a judge. But when we come to chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 9, verse 10, we get this long, extended lament. This is very interesting. I don't know when the last time was that you got hauled in before court. For me, it wasn't too long ago. <laughs> I mean, really, not too long ago. Uh, and uh, the judge was a very fine man. He was very kind and gracious and very just. But you know what? When he told me I had to pay whatever it was I had to pay, there, they, I didn't notice a little tear trickling down his cheek. You know? I didn't get... I mean, he was nice, but, you know, in terms of mitigating my the offense against the state or in terms of mitigating my fine or anything like that, or even saying, son, I'm just really, really sorry. You know? He didn't tell me that. And uh, when, you go to, when you go to court, uh, you don't expect to see a tear coming down the judge's face, do you? But here's the interesting thing about God. You will see a tear. Even as he pronounces these thundering judgments against your scandalous behavior, he sheds a tear. He's really like a most loving parent. He's a father. Your father is a judge. He is righteous, but he is your father. And there is a tear. And there's great sadness on his part. I don't know if you remember the first time you ever saw your parents cry. I remember the first time I saw my grandmother cry. And when, it, when I saw her cry, I knew I had been really bad. <laughs> I mean, my grandmother had to be one of the sweetest ladies in the whole, the whole earth. And she made the mistake of having several grandchildren stay over to her home overnight without the intermediate generation there. So it was my elderly grandmother and about five uh, rascals staying. Uh, you know, we just slept out on the back porch and we got a little rowdy. And finally, by, by early afternoon of that next day, my grandmother just broke down. And we all went out in the backyard. We were just shaking. Oh, we've been terrible. <laughs> we, we made Granny cry. <laughs> so when, you've been, when you made your Granny cry, you've been bad. And uh, maybe you remember the first time you made your parents cry and you realize, you know, this must be very, very serious. And here we have 
you know, you look in the Bible and you find the people of God lamenting many times because we mess up, we get into trouble, and we have a lot to cry over. I mean, we die. Uh, people we love die. We got a lot to cry over. But the interesting thing about chapter 5 through almost the end of the, the book is that God is now lamenting. And uh, when you see Him lamenting, you see Him weeping, then you know we, we must have messed up really badly. Uh, and that's what we're moving into. First of all, it's the lawsuit. We see Him as judge. And now we see Him as broken, tender father uh, over His sons. Now, we saw that He laments our predicament because the ruin is going to be great. The remedy is so simple. Seek the Lord and live. It's just so simple. The gospel is simple. You sinned. You cannot make up for it. You need a payment made to this God of justice. You can't make it. Jesus Christ was sent into this world to make that payment. He made the payment. All you need to do is receive Him and the payment He made for you and give your life to Him. It's that simple. Seek God and live. And that's the way you're going to live. And if you don't, you're not going to live beyond this life. If you don't have Christ in your life, you're not going to live beyond this life. That's the message of the Bible. You, we live in a wonderful country uh, that allows you to believe whatever you want to believe. And I, I'll die for that value. I'll die for the freedom that you have to disagree with what I just said. I'd die for that. And I hope you would die for it too. Many of our men did die for it. Uh, we must continue to die for that freedom. So you have all the civil freedom you need to believe whatever in the world you want to believe. But what the Bible says is God offers life he offers it His way. It must be on His terms. And it's very simple. And that's what it was for Israel. And that's what it is for us today. There are no exceptions. So He laments because the remedy is so simple. And if you simply receive the grace that He offers you, you'll have life. And He laments over the fact that you don't, if you don't. And the reasons are clear. And here's this famous verse. You turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. And here's the offense that we are showing our hearts by the way that we live it out in society. Now, last week, we asked some basic questions. We asked, what is righteousness? What is justice? We saw that righteousness is acting rightly in accordance with God's law. So righteousness has to do with conformity to a standard. And that standard is God's law. And so if you are a righteous person, you look at the law of God, you take it into your heart and you seek to live it out. And that's being a righteous person. If you're a just person, you give your neighbor his due based on biblical communal standards. And we saw that those standards are probably different from the standards that you may be used to when you think of justice. When we think of justice. We think of what is known as retributive justice, the word from which we get retribution. That is that if you break this law, you will receive this penalty. That's justice. And that is justice. That's called retributive justice. But what the Bible is saying is that justice is a bigger word. Mishpat. Remember the word. Uh, justice is a bigger word than just retributive justice. It also includes distributive justice. The Bible makes this clear because, as we said, the land had a jubilee every 50 years when the land would turn back to its tribal owners. You remember the 12 tribes of Israel? They all had an assignment of land. And if you were prosperous and if you were shrewd and wise and productive and hardworking and industrious, you may buy up some property. But when it comes to the year of jubilee, it's going to go back. So you can buy it up for 50 years. 
Or if you're 20 years from a jubilee, you can buy it and own it for 20 years. Do with it, with it whatever you like. But in the 20th year, which will be the 50th year of the jubilee, it's going to go back to the other party. So, of course, the sales price goes down the closer you get to a jubilee because you get, only get to hold it for so many years. That was an aspect of mishpat, social justice, which allowed the next generation, you know, 50 years would be at least one generation, almost one and a half generations away, and it would allow each generation to have renewed access to the means of production, the means of economy, the means of power in the culture. Now, the interesting thing is always, when you look at the Old Testament, you have to realize that the political boundaries and the ecclesiastical boundaries are the same. The church and the state are coterminous. Whereas in America or any other country, you don't have that case. So you always have to do some theologizing to lift out of the Old Testament the idea for the New Testament. So I'm not suggesting a year of jubilee in the United States of America because this is not the Holy Land. We don't have tribes where people have had uh, land assigned to them except for those who were oppressed 150 years ago and were ended up on reservations. But we don't have a theology of the land because God's people now are in dispersion. They don't have the land. They're in dispersion. But it's the same principle. Are we living in a society as Christian men being very aware of the generational aspects of wealth and power? Or are we taking measures to reverse those generational aspects of wealth and power, both in the state and in the church? And there are measures one takes in the state, measures one takes in the church. The church should do some things that are not incumbent upon the state. Uh, the church can go way beyond mere retributive justice. For example, there may be all kinds of debates about affirmative action. There are all kinds of debates about racial affirmative action. And, you know, sometimes I'm not quite sure what I think in the state. But here's what I think in the church. And here's what I think about individuals. When you see that any group in your nation is under-resourced, underprivileged, underpowered. You just simply take it upon yourself to reverse the curse, to return power to the people so that there's not only retributive justice, but distributive justice. The man of justice is concerned about both. So the state may have issues of simple legal uh, jurisprudence, uh, legal, retributive justice, do this, and you get fined, do this, and you go to jail, and so on. The church, at least the church, is interested in distributive justice and looking for ways to reverse it. And there may even be ways within the state where we can influence the state to exercise distributive justice. You know, uh, in some parts of the country, not so much around here, but certain parts of the country on this issue, there's some folks who are asking for you know, reclaiming their rights from 150 years ago as slavery and asking for uh, payments. You know, I, sometimes I've heard $20,000, $50,000, you know, give me my 40 acres and a mule that I was promised, you know. And, uh, of course, so many folks are up in arms, you know, that, that, you know, part of me just wants to say, well, how much do you want? <laughs> just tell me what you want you know, to get this thing right. Let's get let's get justice. Let's let's get distributive justice. Let's be sure that everybody has access to the levers of power. You can say, well, you know, everybody's got an equal chance. Well, if, for those of you and several of you in this room, 
serve almost every day of your life in under-resourced communities, and you know the hopelessness and the despair of broken families and of no light at the end of the tunnel. And you know, until people in this community do something to reverse that, you can make all the, all the retributive justice you want to make. You can make the courthouse as clean as you want to make it, and there still won't be justice. Until people know that they have really, they're convinced they have access to power. That's the reason that folks need to go into the under-resourced community. Spend time there. Convince them. Give them hope. Share your power with them. So the Christian man, the man of mishpat, the man of justice, is a man who's seeking to bring up those who have been pressed down. That's the heart. And you figure out the methods. I'm no lawyer. Uh, I'm not a social ethicist either. But you figure out how you're going to divest yourself and invest in other people who need to be brought up. That's mishpat. And so God looks at culture and he says, y'all aren't doing this. You know, you're concerned about your two and a half children and your wife and your estate and your happiness. And he's very, very sad over it because he knows what's going to come from it. Now, if this is God's view, we asked the question last time, how are we doing? And we saw that the gap between the haves and the have-nots is greater than any time since 1929. And we saw that the U.S. has the greatest income inequality of all developed nations. The greatest. And the CEOs, we compared that. And the poorest 10% in the U.S. are worse off than the poorest 10% in any developed country other than the U.K. That kind of shocked me when I saw that, when I went looking this stuff up. But uh, we're in pretty bad shape, frankly, uh, when it comes to mishpat in our country. Uh, I'm talking about civilly. And I find the church is simply reflecting culture on this, to tell you the truth. Look at some other statistics for just a minute. I think these have been handed out to you. If not, you'll get them next week. But if you look at the income of families in the United States, you'll notice these statistics are, you know, eight years old. But you'll notice that in the lowest fifth, the percent of total income has gone from 5.7% of the total to 4.2. If you look at the top 5%, uh, since 74 to 96, it's gone from 14.8% of the total to 20.3% of the total. So the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. It's just that simple. This is not a Clinton thing. It's not a Bush thing. It's an American thing. Okay, so let's not, I don't care what political party you belong to, both parties have messed up. So it's, it's an issue in our culture. If you look at this chart, you'll see the percent change in income per quintile. For example, if you're in the lowest fifth, the lowest quintile, the percent change in your income is going down six, is 16%, negative 16. If you are in the top quintile, uh, well, let's put it this way. This is, says, I know you can't read this. This is 81 to 90%. Uh, you've gone up 9%. If you're in the top 1% of income in America, uh, your percent change has gone up 72% uh, over the same period of time. Likewise, if we look at the, uh, the share of wealth, oh, that didn't even show up, but the bottom 80%, this is the bottom 80%, in 62, 1962, the bottom 80% had 19% of the wealth. And in 1997, they had 15.7% of the wealth. And you say, that's not such a great percent. That's a huge shift when you get that many percentage points on the bottom 80%. Look at the top 20%. Well, I say, look, you can't see because 
It doesn't. Well, it does show a little bit. We've gone from 81% in 1962 to 84.3%. I say we because I'm sure that almost everybody in this room is in that top 20%. So the disparity is huge. And I mentioned to you last time, I had to, after I said this to you, honestly, I went back and I checked my sources again to be sure I didn't fib because it sounds so outrageous to me. In terms of ownership, of assets in this country, the top 1%, top 1% own more than the bottom 90%. That's hard for me to come to grips with. Uh, I think we're in need of a jubilee, gentlemen. Uh, now, how are we going to do this jubilee thing? We're not going to force it in the state because the state and the church are no longer coterminous. What we're going to do is we're going to get interested in that bottom 20 percent, that bottom 40 percent, that bottom 60 percent, that bottom 80 percent in that order. We're going to get really interested in them. And when you get involved, you're going to find out the lower the scale you go, the more massive the problems are. And you get into Gordian knots that rationally cannot be untied. So if you expect to go down there and fix it, don't even go down there. You're wasting time. But if you'll go down and love and express the compassion of our Father who weeps and laments over us, you'll find that you're just simply expressing His character. And you know what? Every once in a while, you'll find a young man who gets it and who will learn from you and who will take your encouragement and he'll put it to work. And his life will be changed. And there are a few of you in here who came out of that group. And we thank the Lord for it. That's Mishpat. Men who have a heart for people who are not making the kind of money they're making. And who are constantly wanting to raise up the entire culture. And if you had your way, everybody would be doing equally as well if you had your way. That's the heart. The heart of most men is, I don't want everybody to do as well as I am. (laughs) That's the game. The game is to get on top. That's the whole game. And if you remove that, you've taken my whole reason for being away from me. I'm just telling you, God laments. Because He doesn't care about you winning the game. He cares zero about you winning the game. What he cares about is social justice. And that's the reason that the prophet says, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a mighty stream. That's what God wants. Let it come on like a flood. That makes him happy, not you being on the top. So you can see just from these statistics that we have a long way to go in our country and we have a long way to go in the church because we're supposed to be the leaders of this. So in verses uh, 10, 11, and 12, you'll see this idea of retributive justice and distributive justice. If you'll look at chapter 5, verse 7, he says, you turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. There's the key verse. And then look at verse 10 on the next page. You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. So first of all, you hate, you hate uh, uh, retributive justice as well as uh, distributive justice. Uh, You trample, verse 11, on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Uh, This stuff in the newspaper just recently, people who 
seem to be really expert, you know, at greasing the palms of other people and affecting votes. It's inevitable. It affects votes. God notices every one of those events. He notices all this buddy-buddy stuff where I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. I'll do this for you. You pass this ordinance for me. And we end up with billions of dollars of debt that the whole culture bears. And who's going to pay for that? Well, the rich will pay their part. But if you look at how the rich try to finagle the tax structure, the tax burden will more often end up by and large on the poor. So you've got developers and people who are trying to make a big money on growth out east and they get their ordinances the way they want it. Nobody's paying for all the infrastructure that goes out there. It's just social injustice. People who are greedy. Don't think for a minute that when you associate yourself with that, that's the way you're going to live your life. Don't think for a minute that God that escapes God's notice. Your preacher doesn't know about it. Your wife probably doesn't even know about it. God knows about it. And he doesn't like it. And here we have a city that desperately needs resources to put into this educational system we've got, if you want to call it that. We have a great leader, Dr. Carol Johnson, in the city. She's got massive problems. She needs money desperately. I've told you about a high school over here. I'm sorry, an elementary school where the teachers have 30 kids in a class and have $100 for supplies. What's, what are they going to do with that? And meanwhile, people are ripping each other off, trying to amass big estates, and just forgetting 120,000 kids who need to be educated in this city. Now, that's not a crime necessarily. In the civil books, that's a crime when it comes to the Bible. And let's be sure if we're men of Zedek and Mishpat, we'll be men who do not just concern ourselves with the civil law. We should be aware of it and should obey it because it's delegated by God. But we're especially aware of what the Bible says. And that's going to be what regulates our hearts and our behavior. So we can see that. It's denied in both cases. And in verses 16 and 17, of course, you see the results are tragic. And what do you see in these results? If you look at verses 16 and 17, look at that. There will be wailing in all the streets, cries of anguish. The farmers summoned to weep, mourners to wail. Verse 17, wailing in all the vineyards, just weeping and wailing. That's going to be the results of our amassing for ourselves these incredibly vast riches in our own private accounts while the poor go on struggling. Now, God laments our predicament. He also laments our hypocrisy. Let me just put this up in toto. In chapter 5, from verse 18 through the end, God is lamenting our hypocrisy. What, what does he mean? Hypocrisy is pretending to be something that we're not. Hypocrisy is play acting. Hypocrisy is putting on a front. Image management, when the heart is not consistent with the outer behavior or the outer image. There's hypocrisy. It's insincerity. Lack of integrity. Integrity is consistency from the heart to the outside. And so since God sees the heart, He of all, of all beings in the universe, of course, would be the most offended by lack of, of sincerity because He can see it. It's in His face. And He knows what you're doing. And it's an offense against Him. It begins in verse 18 with a self satisfaction in things religious. He says, verse 18, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. That is, we cry out, you know, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come on and judge this whole earth. He says, woe to you 
Uh, why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. He's saying, why are you joining in the hymn, calling for Jesus to come back? And that day is going to be tragic for you because you're living a hypocritical life. Look at this analogy. Verse 19. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. <laughs> as though he entered his house and, and he was running from, from someone. He enters the house, whew, leans against the wall, and a snake bites him. <laughs> It's the analogy of the prophet is easy. Amos does not mince words in case you hadn't noticed. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? So basically what God is saying is it doesn't matter how sure you say you are. And I've known, listen, I've known men who were on their deathbed and who lived like the devil and and I want to go and speak to them about the Lord because the Lord is so merciful. You can spend, you know, 85 years living like the devil and sincerely turn to him in repentance and faith on your deathbed. And you are just as saved as anybody in this room. That's how good God is. Now, you will have missed 85 years of opportunity. And that makes me very sad. And it would make you very sad if you became a Christian at 85 and you lived like the devil for 85 years. But that's how gracious God is. So, of course, I'm going, wanting to share the gospel. And here's, here's what I get. Well, you know, I haven't lived a perfect life, but I don't know anybody else who has either. And you know what? My mother, she was a fine Christian. And I, I, I was baptized when I was eight years old in my church. And I know I'm going to heaven. Okay. I don't know. I'm not God. But it sure sounds an awful lot like presumption to me. And there's a difference between assurance and presumption. Assurance is a gift from God. And if you are trusting in Christ, He wants you to be sure of your relationship with Him. You can be sure of your relationship with Him. You must be sure of your relationship with Him. But it must be on the grounds of what Christ has done for you and what Christ has done in you. Not on your presumption. So if you put your faith in the wrong thing, it doesn't matter how sure you are. You're just wrong. So it doesn't matter just how sincere you are. You can be sincerely wrong. And that would be presumption. So be very careful that you don't just try to spin your situation. You may spin it with the preacher. You may even fool the preacher. You ain't fooling God. You can't spin him. So this is what they were doing. They were spinning it. They were singing all the songs about, call on God and give us your judgment. Because I know you'll take care of those Edomites. And he says, you're being presumptuous. And secondly, our feasts are phony, our offerings are meaningless, and our music is noise. He's talking about their worship. You know, and uh, we get real excited about sometimes our worship services. Some of you are in, in services where you have wonderful pipe organs and tremendous choirs. Some of you are in services where you've got the bands and the guitars and people are shouting and singing and hallelujah and hanging off chandeliers. Tell you what, I can enjoy both of them. But you know what? A lot of people with their pipe organs are frankly not going to be in heaven. No matter how loudly they sing or how many pipes they buy or how many offerings they make or how many Eucharists they take. There are going to be some people who really know how to rock with Jesus. And they're not going to be in heaven because they were there just there to rock. They weren't there really to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So your offerings and your music, even your tithing, that's not going to get you anywhere. God sees through it all. It's called hypocrisy. And He laments it. 
Because what he wants, of course, he tells us to tithe. He tells us to sing. He tells us to worship. But it's to come from a heart that has been given to him. That's what he cares about the most. So he sees through that. That's his analysis. Then his commandment, this famous verse, Martin Luther King made it famous in our own generation. Let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. That's what God really cares about. Then we'll see also that he laments our complacency. Thirdly. And of course, in verse 27, you get the judgment for all this. But in thirdly, we're going to see in chapter six, he laments our complacency. What is this all about? Well, if you'll look in verse four, especially with me, he he says, verse one, woe to you who are complacent in Zion. But look at verse four. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. Well, <laughs> that looks like a pretty good description of my last vacation. How about you? <laughs> you know, I mean, here it is. Here is the American culture writ large. I mean, this is what we all aspire to. I'd love to be able to understand music enough so that when my wife wants to go to the opera, I don't groan. I mean, I'd really like to be able to enjoy You know, I want to know music. I want to know the finest wines. I want to know all these things. I want to, I want to pamper myself a little bit. And I, and I certainly want a nice house with beautiful furniture in it. That's all he's saying. He says, here's the way you're living. But, verse 6, you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. You do not grieve over the ruin of the church. It's lack of justice and caring and compassion for one another. You don't moan over the ruin of your culture. These things that we've just been looking at doesn't seem to, as long as you've got your ivory, <laughs> your ivory inlaid furniture, as long as you've got your great vacation and your wine cellar is full, hey, life's good, right? Man, I'm enjoying it. And he's saying this is a problem. Uh, that you're, you've been lulled to sleep. You've been made complacent by my gifts. The gifts I gave you made you complacent, he's saying. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. You know, when you get the picture in, in uh, First Peter of God coming back, he basically says that he will judge the church first. And we're going to be the first ones that he takes into account. And so it doesn't matter what kind of claims you've made, how presumptuous you are about your relationship with him, how you spend your, your own life and rationalize it, and how successful and comfortable and how many blessings of God you've enjoyed, which often would make the people of God say, well, see how he's blessed me? Surely he wouldn't send me to hell. Look how he's blessing me now. That's just reverse thinking, he's saying. God laments it. It's a misunderstanding. Then he laments our pride, verses 8 through 14. You see in verse uh, eight, for example, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses because why does he detest the fortresses? Why does he detest their army and their defenses? Look in verse 12. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You see, this is the third time we've seen justice and righteousness used like this. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Carnaim by our own strength? These were cities that apparently they took back from other countries. And here's what they're saying. 
Boy, we went into Baghdad and we took it, boys, didn't we? We went into Lodabar. We were more clever than they were. No one's saying, you know, God seems to be at work. We don't deserve this, but He seems to be at work here and give Him the credit for the battles. Now, once again, in Israel's day, their military battles had deep theological significance that uh, are, is not the same in our own day. But here's the point that's applicable for us. They were taking great pride in their strength, in their military prowess. All you have to do is to get out and travel a little bit and watch your fellow Americans in other countries. It's just phenomenal. We think that we are the center of the universe. Now, in fairness, so did every other country. But, <laughs> but we happen to be the ones with monetary power, political power, and military power. And we think, and you just find these Americans just talking glibly about, with very little awareness of other cultures, other nationalities, other situations. And there really is such a thing as the ugly American. And what God is saying is, there's such a thing as an ugly Israelite, an ugly Christian, who is arrogating to himself the credit for the things that are going well in his life. And God says, that just breaks my heart, makes me cry. It's such a, it, it would be a joke if it weren't so evil that you think that you've got where you are by your cleverness. By your good looks? Come on. <laughs> by your intelligence. By your power. It's sad. And it will lead to judgment. God laments our downfall. And this leads us to the last section, or the next to the last section of the book. His judgments, first of all, when you get to this lament in chapter 7, if you turn there with me, it's on the bottom of page 1449. You will see that he introduces five visions. Two of the visions he relents on. We'll talk about that in a moment. Three of the visions he does not relent. And it, these, his relenting on the one hand and his not relenting on the other hand tell us something very important about the judgment of God for all of these things. First of all, in those visions where he relents, he's teaching us that his judgments will not be total. He, he does pronounce warnings from which he will relent. And he's warning us now. And he will relent uh, in some ways. His judgment will not be total. For example, you get to this story about the locusts. And Amos says in verse 1 of chapter 7, This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested. And just as the second crop was coming up, when they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive how can Jacob survive? He is so small. Lord, stop! The church is dying, he says. So, verse 3, the Lord repented. Or as it's translated here, the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. And then the same thing happens with fire. That Amos cries out, and the Lord, verse 6, relented or repented. Now, some people think, see, there's proof that God doesn't ordain whatsoever comes to pass. He changes his mind. This is complicated. You might want to just look uh, at the footnote in your own study Bible under chapter 7, verse 3, down at the bottom right of page 1449, where it says 7, 3, relented. Take a look at that and just study that on your own. God ordains from all eternity everything that comes to pass. In time, 
He will pronounce a judgment that sometimes it's a warning, sometimes it's a sure thing that's going to come, come to pass. Sometimes it's a warning, sometimes it's a prediction. The prophets don't always distinguish between what's a warning and what's a prediction. Now here, you're getting it. Two visions that were warnings, and if the people repent, he will, he will pull back. In three visions, it is a prediction, and it's certainly going to come to pass. And that's what we see uh, in verses 7 following is a clear prediction. His judgments will be certain. Now, there are, there are three visions here. We're going to go through them quickly. First of all is the plumb line. And what we're understanding in chapter 7, verse 7 through 17, is that God has a standard. If you look at uh, verse 7, this is what he showed me, says Amos. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. So, guys, you can morph God's word all you want to. You can believe in whatever religion you want to. You can make up whatever ethical standard you want to. You can say those rules of social justice don't apply to me today. You can make up anything you want to make up, but here it is. There's a plumb line. You can get Billy Graham to stand up and preach a great crusade on how you really don't have to love your neighbor to go to heaven. You can get a big choir, bring all the choirs, Hispanic, black, white, Asian, bring them all in, get a joint choir, get hundreds of them to sing the, the hymn, you don't have to be just your neighbor. Get them all to sing, get everybody excited, get everybody hanging off the chandeliers. There's a plumb line. It doesn't change. So God, when He judges this whole world, it's going to be by plumb line. And ultimately, we see in the New Testament, there's one plumb line. Have you put your faith and your whole life in Jesus Christ, His Son, the Messiah that He sent for you? Have you done that? That's the plumb line. You can make whatever religious rules you want to, whatever ethical rules you want to. You can create your own ideas of how the final judgment is going to come. There's the plumb line. There's Jesus Christ standing right over there. So you can see He's saying the judgment. That will not change. There's no relenting on this. There's a plumb line. There's a standard. And then you find in, in the second part of that vision, verses 10 and following, and we're told this story about how Amaziah tells Amos, don't prophesy. He says to him in verse 16, do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the house of uh, Isaac. Stop it. And Amos says, can't do it. He says, your wife will become a prostitute in the city and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Verse 17. Then we get the story of the ripe fruit. And he's saying that Amos, Amos is saying the people of Israel are ripe for judgment because verse 5, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, they're saying, and the Sabbath be ended. So they're, they're slacking off on their worship. They're skimping the measure. They're boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales. They're ripping the people off. And verse 6, buying the poor with silver. All this. He's saying you're ripe. The fruit is ripe. And then he says, as punishment, verses 11 and 12, these key verses, if you'll look at 8, 11 and 12, so therefore the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food, not a famine of thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Gentlemen, what happens is when you have churches that are claiming to be Christian churches 
And then they say that, you know, all roads, religious roads, lead in the same place. Or they say, you know, the Bible is, is like any other book. It's a, it's a special book, but it's to be interpreted and believed just like any other book. And you can be critical of it and you can question its authority. Or they say, you know, there are some other books in history that have equal authority to the books in this Bible. This is all being said in churches, in religious departments. Let me tell you what this is ultimately, uh, what the reason for this is. This is not just cause for judgment. This is the judgment. Because you had universities like Harvard and Yale and Princeton who were founded for the development of pastors primarily so the colonies would have the Word of God preached to them intelligently. And we decided not to listen. So we changed those universities into something else. Believe me, something else. And you can find colleges all across this land who have followed in their footsteps. And we had churches where people would preach the Word. And folks ignore it. So the Lord says, okay, I'll just starve you. Not physically. Look at us. We're all fine. Had a nice breakfast this morning. But I'll just take the Word of God right out of your churches. And that's exactly what he's doing. So you can read the decline and fall of of Roman Empire. Or you can read the decline of the West. Other books. You can look at the analysis. But this is one of the, the ingredients that you'll always find. When it declines, the Word of God is, begins to be taken away from the people. When God's people are destroyed, however, in chapter 9, verse 1 through 10, it will not be total. And you pick that up especially in verse 8. Look at 9, 8. Surely the eyes of the Sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. Look at that. He calls His church the sinful kingdom. What a description. I will, I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Wow. Your church? Yes, Yet, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. So when the church abandons the Word of God, the God of the Word will abandon the church. And they will be destroyed. But not the whole church. Now that gives us a little hope. Some of you may be saying, you know, Wilson, I'm not sure I can take any more of these minor prophets. I'm not sure I can take you anymore. Uh, there's too much hell, fire, and brimstone around here. And I've had enough of this. I've been through Amos, Joel, and Hosea. And doggone it, I'm getting sick and tired of this. How angry can a God get? Well, I, I remember Francis Schaeffer once said that if he had an hour on a train with secular modern man, he'd spend the first 50 minutes convincing him that a holy God is angry at his sin. It'd take him 50 minutes. Then he said, I'd need 10 minutes for the gospel. That's what Amos is saying. It's taken me about eight, rather, yeah, eight and a half chapters to convince you of something. That God is holy. And that you're not. And that you're hopeless. Unless He does something for you. It takes eight and a half chapters to convince you of that. Then it's going to take just a half chapter. As a matter of fact, just a few verses. You want to see how few verses it takes you to convince you? That God is love, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, five verses. Took eight and a half chapters to convince you of the other. And that's what the other prophets are. Because the people of Israel are not getting it. The church is not getting it. They're hard-headed and hard-hearted. So it takes eight and a half chapters to say, God is suing you. God is weeping over you. 
And then he says, let me tell you, God's got a great plan for you. Don't lose heart. I want your attention. I want you arrested. I want you awakened. I want you convicted. But don't lose heart. Let now your broken heart turn to the Lord and He will heal it. And He can only heal a broken heart. He cannot heal a hardened heart. He can heal a broken heart. So now if your heart is broken, look at the good news. Verse uh, chapter 9, and that's exactly what we've done. We've got six minutes to talk about the Gospel. And for 54 minutes, we talked about hell. Okay? <laughs> you're saying, you're, well, I don't want to say what you're saying this morning. But look at verse, verse 11. In that day, what day? This day when He's going to do something special for His people. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. Now, there are some remarkable things in those two verses. First of all, God's people will be restored in the last day. What last day? After Babylon, it's going to come... uh, Well, after uh, the... uh, the northern kingdom is taken into exile in 722, which is only 38 years later. They will be restored. How? Same way that the southern kingdom, when they're taken into exile, 586 B.C., they'll be restored. When? When the great day of the Lord comes. When you turn to the New Testament, you find out that when Jesus comes, this is the beginning of the great day. This is the inauguration of the end. We are in the last days. We are, uh, we are in, uh, right on the cusp waiting for the last day to occur. And what's going to happen? God will restore David's dynasty. He says, in that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. Now, folks, I'll give you this to you next week. Don't worry about it if you can't write all this down. Maybe you have it in your handout. But here is a stream of promises beginning with 2 Samuel when God says to David, I'm going to establish your dynasty and it will be forever and ever. And so the people are under oppression and thinking, where is this promise going to come true? And you find the prophets talking about it. Later, Isaiah talks about it. And he will sit on David's throne. That famous Christmas text in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, the root of Jesse. That's David's father. David's the root of Jesse. He will sit on the throne. Jeremiah 33 speaks of it. That famous passage in Micah 5 that we'll look at. Luke, we're told that Joseph was a son of David. And Jesus comes from the line of David. In Romans 1, that we're told according to human nature, He is the Son of David. In other words, here is the promised dynastic uh, royal Son who has come among us. The New Testament writers are saying in Revelation, you get the Lion of the tribe of Judah who is the son of David. And you get the same thing at the very end of the book in Revelation chapter 22 where the Son of David is being worshipped. It's the dynasty that promises to be restored. That's what Jesus has done. That's the whole meaning of His coming. is to fulfill what Amos is promising in spite of all our wickedness, all of our social injustice, all of our selfishness, all of our greed, for those who put their trust in the promise of God that the Son of David will come and restore the dynasty and are looking to Him for in faith and obedience, those people are going to be restored. It's a mighty, mighty claim. And then notice that David's dynasty will not just consist of Jewish people. David's dynasty will possess the nation, including our worst enemies. This is what's so amazing about this. Look at the text in verse 11, verse 12. He says, so they may possess the remnant of Edom. Hold it just a minute. The remnant of Edom? You see, in the Bible, you find the word Edom 
going way, way back as an arch enemy of the Israelites. They were the neighbors over in Jordan, in kind of southern Jordan. When the Babylonians, years later, come to take the Jerusalem of the Israelis out of there, the Edomites are scorning them. They're helping the Babylonians to take the Israelites into exile. When Moses, years, years, centuries before, wanted to come through the wilderness and ask for permission to go through Edom, the Edomites said, no, go around us. There were ancient animosities between these two people. Edom, what do they have to do with the kingdom? We'll destroy them. What are you talking about? They're going to be restored. Just a hint. And then after you see the word Edom, you have to ask yourself about the word remnant. When you look at the word remnant, you find it throughout the Scriptures. What's this remnant idea? Joseph said, you intended it for evil. God intended it for good that I would come to Egypt. Why? To preserve a remnant of His people who would be in starvation and come to Egypt and need to be fed. And He put me here under your wickedness, but under His providence so that I could protect the remnant. The remnant of what? The remnant of Israel. But the remnant of Edom, there are four Old Testament instances of remnant referring to Gentiles, and all of them refer to destruction. Except for this one. Remnant means the part of Israel God's going to save. You get to Romans 9, and people are asking, how is it that so many Jews can be destroyed if they re reject Jesus Christ? Because you made all these promises to the Jews. And Paul uses remnant theology. He says it was never for all, every single individual of Israel. It's for those who believe. And those who believe in the Messiah, they're the remnant. He's using the remnant argument in Romans 9. But here, the remnant of Edom? Yes, this is how gracious God is. You can not only be wicked, but you can belong to the most wicked people of all the world. In fact, all the nations that bear my name. Everybody from everywhere who trusts in me will be restored and come under the Davidic dynasty. And then lastly, you see that it involves a restoration of His people and involves a restoration of creation. God's creation will be renewed in the last days. We will be given a fruitful land. We will all return to that land. We will prosper in that land. For those who have said, I'm going to divest myself. I'm going to have a strategy for mission. I'm going to have a strategy to raise up those who aren't getting a good education in this city. And I'm going to do it because of Jesus Christ the Messiah. It's because I hope in Him. And because I know one day, He is going to make me stinking rich. And I don't have to make it on my own now. He's going to make it for me. And it's that kind of man who goes into this world with Zedek and Mishpat and lives out a life of hope knowing that one day He's going to prosper and it will never change. God will never come to judge again, He says. And you look in Revelation 22 and you find we're there and we're there to stay in the Holy Land of God, prospering before Him with all of the privileges, all of the comfort, all of the convenience, all of the wealth any man could ever aspire to because God says, if you do it my way, you'll end up in the best place possible. And then He's just basically saying, you believe that? 55 minutes to get our attention. Five minutes to tell you, you've got an unbelievable future waiting for you. So play it out. In this little moment, when we, the rich, are to become poor, so that the poor might become rich, especially in their knowledge of the Messiah, whose promises we believe and whom we are serving. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this teaching in Amos about 
how we're to live in this life, the mentality we're supposed to take into the workplace, and the mentality we are to have until our last breath. Please help us. For we by nature would do what every American is doing, what every man does anywhere in the world by himself. That is to acquire the most we can in the least amount of time so that we can have the most amount of time to do nothing very good and just enjoy ourselves. Lord, grant us repentance that you may relent and lift the judgment that seems to be just over our culture and help us to be the ones who are the restorative element in this culture. Grant us mercy and compassion and justice in every respect, in distributive justice and retributive justice, for the glory of the Messiah who is surely coming and in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you.